IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be talking about new albums by Tricks, Point Never and Salem. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, for one thing, super excited about this episode because I think it kind of goes a little bit off brand for us. I mean, do you, do you ever feel sometimes that like you're feel maybe that you're getting a bit typecast as a writer or as someone who the as as far as your music taste goes? Because last week, um, a friend of mine was telling me this 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 writer, a pretty a pretty renowned writer. Some might say he even wrote the book on emo. Like texted her saying, "Hey, I'm listening to Ian Cohen core," and it was like touche amore. <laughs> um, and it's like I think this episode, um, you know, as much as like I do like identify with that realm, I think this episode brings us back to a time like where we were guys like like we, I don't even think we knew each other back then, but like this is the kind of stuff that I was covering back then, like rap right. and like weirdo electronic music, like back when I was. Just a guy trying to make a name for himself and reviewing any like anything under the sun. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. I think it's like if if you if you think of your favorite actors, you know, I think all of them have certain roles that they're associated with, and it is a double edged sword at some point because you feel like they're very easy to stereotype. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, they have a personality. Mm. So. I like having a personality, <laughs> and I've leaned in. I've leaned into it as I've gotten older. I'm like, hey, I. I I am Stephen Hyden. I'm gonna listen and talk about Stephen Hyden music. And I'm, I'm glad there is such a there is such a thing. So, uh, and I think uh, on this show, we're you know we've already had the indie cast uh, genre of music. It feels like that's already emerging on streaming platforms, which is uh, very flattering for me. And uh, I hope we can continue. To uh, not surprise people with our takes. <laughs> well, just just, on this show. just wait till the end of the episode if if you think we're getting a little bit too far off our path. I'm pretty excited to talk about Salem. I'm stoked to talk about these two. That's that's uh, that's so 2010 to me. And as listeners of the show know, we like to go back to 2010. Yeah, fairly often. Um, but before we get to all that, we have our mailbag segment. And by the way, thank you to everyone who has been writing to us, asking mm. questions. We really appreciate it. We like hearing from our listeners. Uh, most of the time, we're just getting compliments from people, which is great to hear. But you know, if you've if if you've got some complaints, send them over. Ian and I will like talk about you behind your back. We'll make fun of you. You know, if but the you know, but if you want to complain, that's fine. No, but. Hit me up. Uh, my email address is steve.hyden at uprocks.com. You can also hit either one of us on Twitter. We will make note of your questions, and hopefully we'll get to address it in an episode. Um, today's message comes from a listener named Brian. And Brian writes in saying, Just saw a link to your most recent pod off of a Big Thief subreddit. Woo! Listen to a couple episodes, and I think I've been looking for something like this for a little while! Exclamation point. Feels like music podcasts with a breadth of knowledge and influence can be kind of hard to come by without sounding too NPR-y or giving me recommendations to listen to like a Mongolian throat singer or something. Does this guy have a question? Or well, he <laughs> does, but but you know, again, I like to leave the compliments okay. in the reader in, in the listener mail. Uh, 
just so we can again just have this like reflected glory put back on. Maybe us. I'm just not. By the way, maybe I'm just not used to positive feedback from readers. I don't know. This is a little awkward Ian, for me. Lean into the positivity, man. <laughs> this is a positive scene on this podcast. Uh, I was just going to say, we were about to do a special theme episode on Mongolian throat singers, but maybe we ought to reconsider that. It sounds like the listeners wouldn't be into that sort of thing. Um, on the Adrian Linker Biba Doobie pod, you guys talked about Sakamani and Phoebe Bridgers being kind of the origin of a lot of sound-alike bands coming out right now. And I think it would be cool to talk about how many of those, how many other artists are out there like that right now. Two that come to mind are definitely Mac DeMarco for all the bands drenched in synths and seventh chords. And on a smaller scale, Frankie Cosmos for every 8.0 rated indie singer based somewhere in the (laughs) Northeast. I like both of them for sure, seeing as a lot of my taste is kind of built around that 2010 Philly, Brooklyn scene. Uh, There just seems to be a lot of those groups that sound like them right now. Let me know what you think. Again, that's from Brian. Brian, you ought to have your own podcast. You're breaking down the artists with expert music critical acumen in that email. Um, But yeah, Ian, what are other, you know, he mentioned, I think, two really good examples, Mac DeMarco Uh and Frankie Cosmos, artists that it seems like a lot of other, you know, maybe younger up and coming indie artists are looking to them and emulating them in some way. Mm -hmm. What other artists like that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, the past week I've been reading um, Jeff Chang's Can't Stop, Won't Stop, History of the Hip Hop Generation. And like after 15 years. And one of the main points of that book is to really like just listen to the kids, like see what they're doing. They drive culture. And so for the past week, I saw a, um, I saw some articles on hyper pop, um, one written by Eli Enos, a good, uh, good friend of ours. And also one about Lorem, this, uh, Spotify, uh, playlist that is massively influential. And when I looked at Lorem, um, all, every, like it just sounded like this alternate universe where Mac DeMarco was like the Beatles and Tame Impala was the Rolling Stones. Um, people who like they might be 20 years old or even younger, but like clearly, clearly influenced by Mac DeMarco. Uh, Frankie Cosmos, as Brian said, is more towards the indie side of things. But um, I think if you're going to bring up Frankie Cosmos, you have to bring up kind of the uh, counterpoint, which is Alex G. Um you, there, I cannot tell you how many, um, you know, solo singer songwriter band camp type people have taken after Alex G. Whether it's the alternate tunings or the, you know, the vocal ma- ma- manipulations. Um, I think what Frankie Cosmos and you know Alex G. have done in particular is just made the band camp route seem doable. Like there isn't a high bar of difficult. Like they're both very talented, but there isn't a high bar of difficulty to do what it is that they're doing. And so I think though you y- you hear someone with a guitar kind of warbling and like nowadays you think Alex G not like Stephen Malkmus or you know Will Oldham or whatever and if we're going to talk about hyperpop I mean you have to talk about Charlie XCX as like or PC Music as like origin artists as well but that's a little outside of like I think what Brian's asking about also Title Fight um Title Fight is a band that if they are if if we have reunion shows or if you know, they ever reunite. I'm not sure how plausible that is. Like that might be a situation similar to what you saw with Jawbreaker in the past couple of years, where they come back and play like the Palladium in LA. These like two or three thousand cap rooms. Um, so I would say those ones are really getting towards the. If you're like 18 to 22, you're probably going to sound like 
and you play guitar, you're probably going to have some element of Mac DeMarco, Alex G, Frankie Cosmos, and or title fight in there. Yeah, I would also add, you know, you mentioned Tame Impala. I think I definitely hear a lot of Tame Impala oh, yeah. influence and a lot of younger artists. I would also mention the War on Drugs being a big influence, maybe more on the mainstream rockish side. Absolutely. That's like especially like the Sean Everett era, deeper understanding. Mm. I mean, we talked about that Killers record, mm-hmm. you know, a few months ago. That was such a War on Drugs record. They're obviously a huge band, but I think there's lots of other much smaller bands that are aping that synthy heart heartland rock thing that they're doing some really well a band that we both like wild pink yes who, they're gonna be dropping their record next year they're, they're definitely in that lineage but i think there's lots of other bands yeah they're, they're they're ones that you don't really hear very much like i think of the last caveman album it's like these indie bands that are kind of bubbling up on the indie slash mainstream side like there's a lot more war on drugs in their sound now you are absolutely right so Let's get into the meat of our episode. We're talking about two electronic artists in this episode. The first is One of Tricks Point Never. Uh, He has a new record that is out today called Magic One of Tricks Point Never. Mm. Uh, This is a project spearheaded by a guy named Daniel Lopatin. He's been working since the mid-aughts. And working, I guess, like in sample-based music as well as like, like... old synth sounds, MIDI, all that kind of stuff. I would say that his aesthetic is basically taking music from the past, specifically music from the 1980s, I think, for the most part, Mm -hmm. and warping it and changing it in such a way that music that maybe once would have sounded uh, comforting or banal or extremely mainstream ends up sounding a little bit twisted, maybe darker, disturbing, in in some cases, like, very strangely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really... You know, when I listen to his music and also read his interviews, he strikes me as a musician who has a critical element to what he's doing. He reminds me a little bit of, of like, someone who's doing music criticism in the form of music. Yeah. There's something very sort of commenting on the music of the past and also, like, how we remember the music of the past that I think is sort of an in- interesting intellectual element to what he's doing. I think in terms of the mainstream, or like, I guess people that maybe don't normally listen to electronic records, I feel like OPN really came into like a larger consciousness when he started scoring films by the Safdie brothers. Uh, that started with Good Time in 2017. That's a score that I really love. I ended up putting that album in my top 10 list that year. Uh. Uh, that is the record that brought him to the attention of a pop star that you might have heard of named The Weeknd. Uh, he was a big fan of that score. They started talking. Of course, they both ended up being involved in the next Safety Brothers film, which was Uncut Gems that came out in 2019. Uh, and then OPN ended up working on the most recent Weekend record, After Hours, which came out earlier this year, produced several tracks. Uh, they performed together on Saturday Night Live uh, before you know the the quarantine came down. And of course, The Weekend is involved in this new OPN record, Magic One O Tricks Point Never. Uh, sings this song uh, on the record called No Nightmares. I think it's fair to say that if The Weekend is on your record, you have. <laughs> reached a new strata yeah. of recognition in the world. I wouldn't say that this is necessarily like a full-on pop record, but for an OPN record, it does feel broader, perhaps, than the work he's done in the past. I'm curious, Ian, what do you think about this record and, I guess, the overall evolution that OPN has been on for like the past, say, 15 or so years? Well, I think that he's definitely got the mind of, like, if not a music critic, like a music writer or someone on Twitter. I remember I interviewed him back in like 2012 or 13 for Grantland and he would talk about how 
uh, when he was at shows, he would have like one monitor playing the music and sometimes he would use it to check his fantasy basketball scores on the other, like perhaps during a more calm stretch, huge Celtics fan. But, you know, one of Trick's point never to me is an artist who has been like, he's always been there in the 2010s. Like he, he first kind of came onto the scene for me in 2010 when uh, Riffs came out. It's this, I think, a double CD or double album collection of mostly ambient music synonymous with altered zones this sort of phenomenon that popped up it was a pitchfork uh hosted community of blogs that was really getting more abstract and obscure electronic music into the attention of the public and um and you know and that include like you know forest swords or how to dress well or even grimes for that matter and what you talked about the way he deals with sound he used a phrase that i love so much called he's a uh, textural fascism um, huh. And being against that, like I, I, I assume like what he meant by that is like you know an acoustic guitar or you know a drum sound like basically presets. And so what I like about uh, One of Tricks Point Never is that there's really no wrong place to get started because every single thing he's done is it could be considered quote the one. My personal favorite is Replica. That's the that's the uh, sam- most more sample based one where. It's kind of taken from like old VA. It's sort of quasi chill wave-ish, but like a lot scarier. And R plus seven is the one where he really went back more into like vaporwave. Um, Garden of Delete, uh, he claimed that was his new metal album. I think that was kind of like a music writer sort of thing for him to do because it doesn't really sound like corn, but it has some um, intellectual components of it. But you know, with, with, with where he's been, like, I see him as someone kind of operating outside of the greater, um, like, the greater narrative. Like, he's someone who's just, like, kind of carving his own path because I don't hear too many um, electronic artists where I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds like one of Trick's Point Never right there. Like, he he's very chameleonic. And what, I, what I'm curious about, like, at least from your perspective... Um, being on warp, being someone who's achieved this level of notoriety, is he someone that uh, occupies the same spaces like you know Boards of Canada or Aphex Twin? Like, because when I think of like warp artists that kind of dabble in rock, like that's really where the forward-thinking artists look towards. And you know, like you wrote, like when you wrote about Kid A, it's like t- Tom York bought the entire like warp catalog. Is is does one of Point never kind of occupy that space in 2010 i'm curious what you think about that well you know i i feel like i mean if we're just talking like a musical influence i mean in a way if you listen to that weekend record after hours i feel like you can definitely hear the influence of his soundtrack work yeah on good time and uh uncut gems Uh, again those like really kind of bright synth sounds i mean really like his soundtracks they seem more straightforward in a way than his albums are yeah like again I, I feel like his albums have this sort of meta commentary a- element to them where it's like you know you can listen to it at face value but also if you appreciate the source material that he's drawing from he's sort of operating this in this like uncanny valley of like mm-hmm. sort of I, I feel like he's sort of looking at the distance between like the way we perceive things or the way that we hear things uh, and the way it's like presented by technology and the valley between that and like the way things actually are and sort of the weirdness that exists, you know, between like in, in the gap between those things. Uh, and that sort of analytical element, I think 
isn't really in his soundtracks. Like the the scores are basically just like these very sort of intense, mm-hmm. uh, you know, evocative soundscapey things that are more, I think, directly rooted in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, which, and I think that aesthetic, obviously, I don't know if you would just attribute that to him. That's something that has been just sort of broadly popular. Mm-hmm. I feel like in this realm for like, like the past decade or, yeah. or so. Yeah. Good time. Um, good time. And uncut gems to me sit like it sits in this space between what the the Stranger Things soundtrack does, and um, I guess you, like Trent Reznor's soundtrack work, it's a little right. It's like more obscure, like more um, intense, and I think the movies are they're just not the same without them. I think if we see any sort of like major influence of One of Tricks Point Never going forward, it might be the same way like people say like John Carpenter esque synths. Like I think his soundtrack work is really what's going to be. Um, influential going forward rather than like people listening to like replica or you know at r plus seven because with him it's he kind of moves on from things very very quickly but i think his soundtrack work is what people will it's like yeah we want one tricks point never to do that right exactly yeah you mentioned Trent resner yeah his, his the, like the scores that he's done definitely remind me of like those early resner scores like for the social network yeah. and um I guess we should mention Atticus Ross too. Atticus yeah. Ross always getting the shaft. <laughs> People don't want to mention Atticus in the man, in the, in the I, context. Of that. I'm sure he but sleeps yeah. well at night. <laughs> yeah, he's he's doing all right. But yeah, and also like how Reznor and as well as Lopatin, they're both referencing. You mentioned John Carpenter. I'd also say like Ger- like Giorgio Moroder, yeah, like those kind of yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, it's interesting. Like this this new record, this uh, Magic One of Tricks Point Never. You know, I, I was setting it up as it as it being again not just i don't think it's exactly a full-on pop record but it is i think um for an opn record it's relatively approachable again you have the weekend on this record you have caroline uh polachek of chairlift mm. she's on a song uh arca is on a track so he's bringing in like fairly well-known uh people uh from the indie pop world as well as of course this huge superstar in the weekend it is interesting to me though that like even in the context of a record like this that I think people, if they're going to narrative, if they're going to write the narrative of this album, you might say oh, it's OPN moving into more of a mainstream strata. It's also like a comment on that as well, because this is a record where he's really kind of reflecting on his own nostalgia for listening to the radio mm-hmm. when he was a teenager, and he's talked about how um, that was how he fell in love with music. And I think even now he says he really likes listening to the radio for the communal aspect of it that that you get from. You know, just hearing DJ's voices and and the idea that all these people are listening to the same thing you are at the same time. Um, And there's bits on the record where there's like these interstitial tracks where it's like these, again, kind of warped sounding like radio transmissions that are in between songs. So this is like, I guess, his version of like a radio station, Mm -hmm. you know, like what it would sound like a pop uh, radio station. Yeah. Even there, it's like a comment on radio as much as. I guess catering to well it. his name itself one of tricks point never I believe it's taken from a Boston radio station 106.7 um, and also magic one of tricks point never was like what he went by before he dropped the magic and went by what he does now so um, yeah I think that it does have this uh, it, it is very much like an intellectual piece like I don't think it's it's his longest record for one thing um, and you know, there's still just as many like really long and drawn out ambient pieces like you know the weather channel which is i think another kind of meta commentary because i think more 
people who like more abstract and like challenging electronic music have acute maybe due to his popularity have accused him of kind of going to that Mike Oldfield like Weather Channel hold music style thing. And so just to call something the Weather Channel, particularly the longest song, kind of nods at that. Um, and yeah, I think it's interesting to like think of the radio because I mean, how often do you listen to the rate like the radio, the radio? Well, hardly never. Yeah. Um, and what it's it's interesting when I do hear it. Like I at work sometimes I've had to drive a van that has no aux cord or whatever, and you realize just how few songs there are on the radio and like how um, how influential it is when it, you have like a captive audience. So I do th- also like to make a make a uh, nostalgic album about the radio very much shows that he is aiming, I don't think, towards like the Zoomer generation, you know, like I think that sort of nostalgia is completely lost upon anyone under the age of, I don't know, 25. Well, although I think, again, on this record, he's not doing it in a straightforward way. No, I, not at all. I think it's another, I think it's another example of him taking something from the past and making it seem you know, something that might seem overly familiar and making it seem sort of alien and new and, and a, a little strange you know and i think that's how it comes across on this record one thing i think that's interesting if you're more familiar with opn through the soundtrack work his recent records have actually been like pretty sedate like yeah. this record and age of uh, which i believe came out in 2018 mm-hmm. are uh both like fairly soft and I think often beautiful, but like I, I think of his work with the Safdie brothers and this mm-hmm. is very appropriate, of course, for those films. Those are like pretty intense yeah, scores are gnarly. and they're great, but like, you know, it, it, it's definitely like riding like a razor's edge of tension mm-hmm. that does not exist on these uh, most recent OPN records, which again, I think tend to be, uh, you know, almost like a soft rock type <laughs> music, which, I, again, not a straightforward version of that, but I think, you know, I think of the song on this record, like, I don't love me, uh, I don't love anyone, yeah. which sounds like, again, like this sort of garbled, uh, you know, like 10cc track from the 70s or something, or uh, that song No Nightmares, the, the, the weekend track. I think he has talked about how that power ballad, uh, Separate Lives by Phil Collins was <laughs> was one of the inspirations for that song, um, which you can hear and and really like that's a I think kind of a genius showcase for someone like The Weeknd. Again, it, it, to me, it's like him having it both ways, where he can like have this huge pop star on his record, mm-hmm. but there's also like a slight almost like deconstructionist quality to having him sing on a song like that. Yeah, I don't know. There's like a layer of irony almost to it, having him having The Weeknd sing this kind of garbled twisted version of an of an 80s power ballad um but yeah i mean for the most part like, i like this record i enjoyed it and i i tend again i would say that i lean more toward his toward his soundtrack work yeah. uh as opposed to his recent albums just because i find them to be a little bit more dynamic mm-hmm. um but i thought I, I like this record overall what did you think um to me, like, I-, I like that it exists. Um, like, I haven't been, like, hit really hard by an- one of Trick's Point album uh, since uh, Replica in 2011. I think that's the one that had, like, this more sort of evil and uncanny sound to it. I think that um, the ones that have come after have been very conceptual, like, very, in a weird way, like, cerebral in a way I can appreciate. Like, oh, oh here's the new one of Trick's Point Never record. And... I listen to it and I think, oh, th- you know, this is good. I appreciate what it's doing. And then 
I read people who are more familiar. It's like, this is amazing. And I always feel like I'm missing something with this work. I think that um, maybe, I, I think in some ways it's similar to uh, the new Sufjan album where if I give myself more opportunity to let it sink in or if I don't quite like let the hot take, uh, you know, sink in, like it'll, I'll probably appreciate it more also there's a big difference between listening to something on Spotify and listening to it on like a Holix promo uh, website. I think that, I, I, I'm, yeah, luxury problems for sure. But I think with him, I think his more interesting work occurs now on um, the soundtracks. Um, and I th- like I don't know like how much, you know, I don't know like which one's more meaningful or if they complement each other. But for me, it's like, this one's good. Am I going to flip over it? I don't know quite yet. I think that, that it, it, he's definitely not fallen off, which is, and he's not become self parody. So, um, I think he keeps the conversation going with him, which is really all I can ask for of a one of tricks point never album. So if OPN represents, I guess, the more cerebral side of electronic music, I think it's fair to say that Salem <laughs> is the non-cerebral side. Um, Salem is a group. They're from Traverse City, Michigan. They are originally a trio. Uh, they were formed in uh, 2008. Their full-length debut, called King Knight, came out in 2010. And I remember that being like one of the uh, most controversial indie records of that year. And I think it had to do... Uh, partly with how Salem was associated with this genre uh, known as Witch House, which I think is, can we say that was critically maligned at the time, I don't, uh, Witch House? I don't, I don't know. I think like it, it was maligned, but also like the fact that it was such a, a phenomenon means that people like were really into it as well. Like uh, it, it's something like it's kind of like Chill Wave in that sense where like a lot of people really made fun of it, but also, there were people who thought, like, this was the future. Right. And it, and you mentioned Chill Wave, and I feel like Witch House was a similar kind of music. I think it had, a like, a, a similar aesthetic in terms of taking reference points from, like, the previous 20 years or so and, and sort of changing it and distorting it and, and reflecting it in more of, a, I guess, lo-fi sort of way mm-hmm. like with witch house it was basically like goth music and like trap rap music yeah you know which which are not two genres that you would have mashed together before but th- i think there was a lot of uh i guess conversation about like cultural appropriation mm-hmm. with witch house i think a lot of people felt that uh some of these groups were especially on the rap side approaching at it from like sort of a tourist perspective mm-hmm. maybe not the most respectful or reverent uh perspective that was certainly a a criticism that was levied at salem back in the day yeah um they were also controversial uh because of this performance that they had at south by southwest in 2010 which i think it's fair to say is like one of the most infamous performances in the history of the festival i actually wrote a piece about that earlier this year right before south by southwest was actually canceled Mm. uh which i remember back then that was like the first sign that covid was gonna like totally upend uh, our lives, I mean, at least in my world, I was yeah. like, okay, this we have to take this seriously. But I wrote a piece about their performance that year, which was basically a disaster. Like they were this group that like clearly had no experience performing live, uh, and they were at the Fader Fort, and they're basically like walking around stage <laughs> listlessly. Uh, I don't know. You, it's hard for me to, to to do this justice on a podcast. You just have to look <laughs> you, up. This like go go look it up. I think the song that they talk about is "Red Lights," which is actually like their one of their best songs. 
But uh, right. But the, I mean, the, it's a couple things. The fact that it's this style of music, that it's Fader Fort, which I think people kind of associate with maybe flash in the pan type uh, music and South by Southwest, like this combination of factors um, just leads. Is it a total? Is it a total fail performance? I mean, we're still talking about it ten years later. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like an. I mean, it's so bad that it's fascinating. You could almost say that it's a commentary. Yeah, we're, I keep talking about meta commentary yeah. in this episode. I, I take a drink because I just said meta commentary <laughs> again. But um, but yeah, the, it's you could almost say like, oh, like maybe they're commenting on terrible up and coming like, hipster bands. We we have to uh, me- we have to mention the fact they're two thousand eight uh, seven inch. Like the first thing I think people most uh, heard from them was called "Yes, I Smoke Crack." So. Um, right. Well, the, well, that was the thing about them is that they had this very decadent image where, yeah, they would do these interviews where they talk about smoking crack, you know, having sex in gas station bathrooms, mm-hmm. you know, all of this like crazy behavior. So there was a mythology about them that I think exceeded the size of their audience, even though they were, I think, a pretty popular uh, group in their time. Um, but yeah, there was there was a, just a strong backlash against them after that South by Southwest performance. I think you know, in the context of the time, I mean, this was the peak of like people complaining about hipsters, like yes, which is where you never hear anymore. But like <laughs> back then, like people were so upset about hipsters and like hipsters ruling the culture and this idea that like if you were a hipster, you were ironically liking things that you were embracing things that weren't actually good, but for some reason you thought were funny or silly and you're going to like insert this into the culture for that reason. And there was a lot of suspicion about that. And I think Salem became a flashpoint for that. Like people that were suspicious of hipsters or they hated that culture. They looked at this band they were like, this is the kind of stuff that music critics like, like, how can we take these people seriously? This is terrible. And, um, it kind of sunk their career, I think in a way. I mean, they put out an EP in 2011, uh, that is called I'm Still in the Night. Uh, but then after that, they they basically went on hiatus until this year uh, in this new record, which is called Fires in Heaven. It's their first full length again in 10 years, the first since King Knight. Uh, they're no longer a trio. Uh, one of the singers, uh, Heather Marlett, is not involved in the project currently. And there was like a mini controversy about this. Apparently, like she wrote an Instagram post where she said that, Basically, she didn't want to tour or be involved in a music project right now because she's a mother of two kids, and she didn't want to hmm. be involved in this in the middle of a of a pandemic. So <laughs> I that's don't a know. very I, odd. That's a very odd controversy with uh, with Salem. It's like ah, I don't want to go on tour, and I want to be a mother to my two kids. It's how very wholesome. That's not very controversial at all. Well, and. I mean, it is a weird time to be relaunching this project. You know, uh, obviously. They, they can't play live, although in Salem's case, maybe, yeah, that's, maybe, that's, not, maybe that's good. <laughs> that's not a bad thing. Um, but, uh, you know, when I wrote that piece about the South by Southwest performance, it was an opportunity for me to revisit King Knight, mm-hmm. which was a record I reviewed in 2010 and, and, and gave a pretty negative review of. And I feel like that record has actually aged quite well. I, I really liked revisiting it. I think that's a pretty strong record. And it actually made me more interested to hear uh, Fires in Heaven I'm just curious, like, what, where do you come from with this group, and uh, what did you think of this record? So, with with Salem, I love Shoegaze. I also love Three Six Mafia. Like, those are two things that I've loved uh, since I became like a knowledgeable music fan, like in the mid '90s. And 
the idea of like putting them both together, it makes sense in a lot of ways because both are very slow, very, very narcotic music. And um, it, it, I think Salem approached that like it, it's funny you mentioned decadent because when you talk about like what they did, which is like sex and gas station bathrooms and smoking crack, which I actually know a guy who like booked the sh- booked some shows in San Diego around that time. Like he was he was the type of guy hanging with like Black Lips and King Con and that whole wave. And he's like, yeah, Salem. Like they were very real. <laughs> like those interviews are not a stunt. Um, and I, it's it's decadent, but like in a very cheap sort of way. You know, it's not like Motley Crue where it's it, that sort of decadence. But um, when I when I came to Salem, I thought they were very interesting. Um, it's it, it's like oh this is new this is novel um this is something that i want to hear more of now can it be done because i think you hear a lot of um artists who you know try to push genres in places they might not be ready to go but um king knight was a record when it finally came out like i was just kind of shocked by how good it sounds like not like the music like or the it's more like the production of it. It was produced by Dave Sardi, who's like a rock guy. I think he's like worked on like a perfect circle records or things of that nature. But um, he did the jet record. Like, yeah, get there, Oh, well, yeah. yeah he's worked with like, well, I was just saying like, whatever you think of jet. I mean, that yeah. is like the epitome of like mainstream rock and like big sounding yeah. rock. So, yeah. So that is the direction that they were coming from with that record. And I think it benefits from that. It, it You're right. It is this like kind of, like dirtbag Midwestern uh, type decadence, but on that album it is blown out. Yeah, to like epic like scale. Yeah, and Trapdoor, um, I think that's the song that people really like look toward. Like if you listen just the instrumentals, like King Knight, which I think sa- samples oh, a Silent Night or something like that. If you listen to that, um, like the bigger instrumental pieces are released the bore. Um, I don't think there's as much controversy, but where can, where where things really start to come up are like songs like Trap Door, um, where they actually like rap and it sounds like chopped and screwed rap, um, and it's you know pretty vulgar, kind of like pretty misogynist as well, and it's like, do we take this at face value? Also, if you can find it after you watch their Fader Fort performance, there's a sped up version of Trap Door on YouTube, which actually sounds like really good. Um, if you can, you know, get past the lyrics, but people like really, really hated Salem. Um, there, I think people like, I think someone called like Trapdoor like the worst song of like the decade. I think, um, but for for me, I appro- well, I think there was a, I think, I, I think because people felt. I mean, I think the issue with that too is that oh, these are like white kids from Michigan, almost yeah. like making fun of rap. I think uh, I think there was like a suspicion, which I don't think is a fair necessarily I don't think it's criticism fair. Like, to make. With three six, but that seemed to be the that yeah. seemed to be fueling the animus though against them. Yeah, with, they were like making fun of that culture essentially. With with three six mafia in particular, like I think to my experience in college, where like I went to school in in Virginia, where you would find people who list like three, six mafia was the only rap they listened to. Like that stuff was so super important, particularly like, for the Midwest. And also like, you know, three, six mafia would uh, collaborate with like insane clown posse and like a guy from saliva. So I think the, the love of it is very legitimate, but with Salem, like you get into this thorny problem of like, okay, I love this music. I love DJ Paul and, and juicy J's production. How do I evoke that with, also not making songs like tear the club up or like slob on my knob or something like that in salem uh i think they made a game effort in a lot of ways 
Um, I, and I also think that when we look at the, when we, we at least compare like Winter Tricks Point Never in Salem, like Winter Tricks Point Never had a much deeper catalog, a much, I guess you would call it successful 2010s, but Salem, I think was way more influential. When you look at like what they did and how it led to, you know, stuff like Goth Boy Click or Emo Rap, a lot of that stuff that come out. Um, it's, it's an album that like, I think, I think, I think artists and, and critics kind of think differently about this record because, you know, critics would think like, oh, Salem couldn't put out a good record. But like, you know, there's like this wave of like younger artists who think what they're doing is cool. Like, I don't care if it's like, you know, two songs are good and like 10 or just whatever. It's they took this idea and kind of ran with it. And I think King Knight to me stands as this album that like may not be like particularly great but is super important and i think it can be both of those things at once you know well i think salem the power of their music is how enveloping it is yes like how huge it sounds and like you have the huge beats and you have these like sampled string sounds and uh it just sounds enormous and i, I and when you listen to king knight like that first track it just sweeps you in and it's if you aren't sort of looking at the cultural context of it like on some of those songs if you're just looking at, at it purely as sound it is you know i think undeniably uh you know evocative and in the you know sort of magnetic in that way i think one reason why they've been influential too is that they have such a fixed aesthetic like mm. and i think when you listen to this new record fires in heaven you know that is a bit of a blessing and a curse because salem Basically, their songs all sound alike. I think. <laughs> I think. I think they have a formula, and they repeat it over and over again. And you know, you and I were talking uh, this week about this record, and I think you texted me at some point, and you said this new Salem record is is, is pretty bad. <laughs> and I, I wrote back, and I'm like, I don't know if I can tell the difference between a good Salem record and a bad Salem <laughs> record. I think like the uh, the gap is very small because again, I think they're doing the same thing all the time. And like like when I listen to this record. I mean, I enjoy it most of the time. I, I guess I enjoy it as much as King Knight. I think the things that are different on this record is, one, you don't have the huge production. No. And two, you don't have that element of danger that mm. I think existed in 2010. Again, the mythology that was around Salem mm. um, that I think maybe turned a lot of music critics off. I'm sure that sucked a lot of people in. Yeah. You know, like these, like they're, they're like smoking crack. I mean, this is amazing. And they're on the edge. <laughs> and, you know, you don't necessarily get that vibe anymore i mean they're older i mean maybe they still smoke crack i have no idea probably not i think think uh, they talk a lot about getting sober um okay yeah well good for them i'm glad glad they did but um so yeah i don't know it it just seems like if you like king knight this is in the same vein i think as king knight Mm -hmm. although maybe i guess just less yeah powerful yeah and i also think like like losing the other like losing heather as a vocalist and is another counterpoint to it because the King Knight worked not just as like this enveloping sort of sound, but also like there were counterpoints to it. Like you had like the real, uh, you know, three, six mafia fanfic, like trap door, but you also had like red lights, which was more of like a shoegaze, uh, trap, like more shoegaze, less trap. And I think that her presence also kind of counteracted, uh, the more unseemly, seemly parts. And, you know, now it's, I mean, does the, does does having a second record take away from the uh, the reputation of King Knight? Like I don't know. Like to me, when I listen to 
I think a lot of the luster's worn off when I listen to like bands who or bands or rappers or whatever who have taken what um, Salem have done and kind of made it better. Like I, I think we have to bring up the Space Ghost Perp album that was put out on 4AD in 2012. Um, Space Ghost Perp is a guy who is kind of working in a similar vein. He um, just like extremely lo-fi three six mafia ripoffs, for lack of a better term, but. Salem made it possible for this guy to release a rap record like that on 4AD, which usually does like Big Thief and Deer Hunter and <laughs> Cocteau Twins records. So you, between that, like Raider Clan stuff, um, when I hear like where people have taken Salem's music, like I don't think uh, they have the ability to really kind of change the trajectory again. Um, when I listen to the new record, it's like, okay, like it's definitely them. But it sounds thinner. It sounds a little more diminished, and like it's it it's quality, but it it's kind of missing that sense of danger, that sense of like it really challenging um, what we think music is supposed to do. You know, it's like it 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 fits very comfortably into a world they created. You know, and I think that's a sign of King Knight's success. I mean, will this be a footnote? Who the hell like? Who the heck knows? I mean, like, I, I don't know if there's been like a heck of a lot of discussion about it ever since. Okay, oh, hey, well, Salem's back. Hey, but other than that, like, I mean, it exists. I'm yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't see this having any impact on how people remember King Knight. I think that is such a singular moment in the history of like, you know, I guess recent indie music. When you talk about 2010, I feel like Salem is gonna have to be discussed mm-hmm. and uh the, you know, the good points of what they did and the bad points of what they did there's such of that moment you know i guess if you want to start in 2008 and go until you know their ep that came out in 2011 like that seems like their moment mm-hmm. this seems like a postscript to me yeah and i think there's, there's there's people certainly that still love salem and they're gonna check out this record and um and again i think that if you like king knight you're gonna enjoy this record i don't i th- i, I I don't, I don't think, think it's going to like I don't think it's going to get like, you know, people are going to say like, oh, this is shit or whatever. Like, I think it'll be kindly received. That's yeah. I think it's like a pretty good record given yeah. the gap <laughs> that exists between, you know, this and like their previous work, you know. But to me, King Knight, again, it kind of stands on its own. And some people will remember this and some people won't even know that Salem even ever made another album. But, you know, how many bands have that one record that people remember? I mean, and how many people... You know, of all the thousands of bands that have performed at South by Southwest, how many do we remember? You know, <laughs> we yeah. don't remember most of the performances that were great or even just okay, but we remember Salem. So, uh, right or wrong, they have their place in the indie rock history books. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we are into this week. Ian, what do you recommend? All right, so as as we kind of hinted at at the top of the episode, this brings us right back into the territory which you probably know us for. Um, the first, the, the, every now and again, I go through these like weeks or something like that where I think, man, there's just there's just nothing happening that's really moving me right now, particularly when we're talking about like the emo slash DIY realm, where I hear bands that's like, oh, another Frankie Cosmos ripoff, another uh, Alex G ripoff. Oh, these guys sound like Title Fight. And then 
right now, um, I don't want to like give a shout out to too many bands in case I want to talk about them in a later episode. But right now, it's a very bumper time uh, for bands in this realm. Um, the one that stands out most to me is I Love Your Lifestyle. They are a band from Sweden. Um, they sound like they're from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, last year, they put out an album called The Movie, which uh, I put that alongside Oso Oso's Basking in the Glow um, as far as records that are definitely emo, but also have kind of a power pop sort of uh, leaning to it. Uh, it's, it's very accessible. And so they actually they came out um, a year later with this record called No Driver, which kind of does the same thing, but a little bit uh, more emphatically. They have a song called A Line um, on the new record, which um, they describe as American football meets Pat Metheny. Um, I don't know if this gets uh, Steve interested, but um, when I hear this record, um, it just makes me think of like, man, what would happen if like a sub pop or merge or matador got behind this sort of thing? Um, It reminds me not just of like revival era emo, but also this mid 2000s blog rock um, that's starting to come around um, through like Biba Doobie or Soccer Mommy or things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's just a record that has no real narrative around it, like no real, um, cerebral aspect to it. Like, you know, English is their second language. So a lot of the lyrics are just very straightforward and kind of funny, but you know, if you're looking for something that hits that, that Oso Oso mark of like emo, but like, I kind of, I kind of think it might be more shins ish or whatever, or like the shout out louds. Um, their last two records are absolutely perfect on that front. Um, I, I just, I, it's, 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 it's futile for me to believe that this band could like make any sort of like inroads in America, not being able to tour and also being from Sweden and, you know, being on a record like dog nights and counterintuitive, which are amazing labels, but don't have a huge promotional push. But like, if you like the sort of music we talk about at the end of these episodes, the last two I Love Your Lifestyle records, like I, I virtually guarantee you're going to like it. Well, that sounds cool. I'm a little surprised you didn't talk about Record Setter in this spot because I know that's, you wrote about them this week for Stereo ne- Gum. That's next week, man. They're, okay. The, 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 for that, um, the, the, they're doing a live stream of the record on Halloween night and it drops on um, November 6th, next Friday. So I, I, I mean, I'm saving that one. <laughs> I was gonna say that they're basically like Ian Cohen the band, <laughs> basically like every everything Ian Cohen likes I think is in Record Center. But also, but that's also true of I Love Your Lifestyle. So just just a, just a, just a different sort of uh, a different sort of uh, if you if you're into like happier stuff, you know. Well, if we can do a hard left now into total Stephen Hyden music, I have to <laughs> start hyping a record that's not going to come out for another three weeks or so. But I've been listening to it a lot lately listening to the promo it's live drugs the upcoming live record from the war on drugs comes out november 20th and look if you know me you know i love the war on drugs so i'm fully on board with this but i'm also a huge fan of live albums and it seemed like we had gone through this period a pretty long period like where bands weren't really putting out live records all that much i guess because you can go on youtube and you can stream 
pretty much any band that you want. Mm-hmm. You know, someone holding up a camera phone and taping a, a band playing in a club somewhere. But maybe because we're in this period right now where none of us can go see live concerts, I've been seeing more live albums come out in 2020 and, and a lot of really good ones. Actually, there's another live record that I'm really excited about that's going to be coming out in December. That's live at the Royal Albert Hall, the Arctic Monkeys live record, which I believe is a charity release benefiting uh, War Child. Uh, among other charities. We'll probably talk about that record again on this show, and I'll get the charitable organizations that it is benefiting down when I talk about it again. But in terms of live drugs, uh, it is a record that is uh, drawing primarily from a deeper understanding and, and lost in the dream. And I think like a lot of great live records, it functions not just as uh, you know a great sort of representation of what a band can do live. And by the way, I, I will say, I think the War on Drugs have had an incredible evolution in the last tw- in the last 10 years or so from being like an okay live band to being like a truly great live band. Like I love seeing them live. I I listen to their bootlegs uh and what they're able to do, how they can kind of transform their songs uh in a live setting has has been really great. Um but I think also great live records they act as almost like de facto greatest hits records. Like like if you want to get into an artist and maybe you're like a little overly familiar with the studio recordings, you can plug into a great live record and you can hit on the highlights of their discography, but in a slightly different way. It makes the familiar songs feel fresh again. And I think that is definitely true of live drugs. Uh, Some of the songs are rearranged a bit in really cool ways. There's a great version of Eyes of the Wind on that record that is Mm. really beautiful. and also, you know, you have songs like Strangest Thing or An Ocean Between the Waves where it's not radically different versions. It's just that the guitar solos are longer and louder, which is basically <laughs> what I want from a War on Drugs record. I want the solos to be even longer than they already are. So um, that's something you want to mark your calendars for November 20th. That record is going to be dropping. So I like that we end the episode with just totally... Uh, leaning into our brands. I yeah. think that is a good way for us to end, <laughs> to leave people with uh, as they exit IndieCast for another week. Uh, thank you all for listening to this show. Uh, we will be back with more reviews and trends and banter and all the good things in our next episode. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Take care. Peace.